Preston in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And a good afternoon to you all. Happy Wednesday and welcome to another edition of Cresta in the Afternoon. As you can tell, this is not Al Cresta. He'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing. But uh, we have other things to talk about over the next two hours including the idea of integrating the psychological with the spiritual. The uh, Church's primary formation documents promote a strong, healthy relationship between the spiritual and psychological dimensions of our identities as Christians. We'll be looking back on a conversation with Brother John Mark Falkenheim about this connection and how to address spiritual and mental health challenges. Uh, Brother Falkenheim is a monk of the St. Maynard Archabbey, where he's the vocation director and he's also adjunct professor of psychology at St. Maynard Seminary and School of Theology. And then uh, later on in this hour, look at history. We uh, just had President's Day, and we will discuss the letter in which Lincoln debated the morality of slavery with himself. Uh, Lincoln wrote countless notes to himself over the course of his adult life. As they were meant for his eyes only, he never signed or dated them. But they do give us a fascinating insight into his private debates on the issues of the time. Ron White is our guest. He is one of the premier Lincoln scholars of our day and the author of several books, including Lincoln in Private, what his most personal reflections tell us about our greatest president. He's also the uh, re- author of the best-selling book simply called A. Lincoln. I read that myself a couple of years ago. would highly recommend it. And uh, other things to talk about in the next hour as well. But before we go there, wanted to be sure to um, continue to remind you of our upcoming Familiaris Consortio Conference on uh, March 2nd. This is going to be titled, Male and Female, He Created Them, Responding to Gender Dysphoria in Truth and Charity. Our keynote speakers include Dr. Paul Harus from St. Louis, Father Sean Kelcali, and John Birch. John is the author of Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology. Al will be speaking there as well. And then as we do in all these other familiar consortium events, we take lots of time after the speakers to take questions from you. Again, that is Saturday, March 2nd. Uh, breakfast begins at 8 a.m. and the event begins around 8.15 at Father Gabriel Richard High School here in Ann Arbor. And you can learn more at AveMariaRadio.net. Uh, before we go to today's program, though, let's go to Steve Clark with the news. Thanks, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Wednesday, February 21st, it's the Feast of St. Peter Damien. Today's news brought to you by the Ave Maria family of funds at AveMariaFunds.com. An estimated 153,000 borrowers in a federal student loan program are getting relief on their student loan debt. The Biden administration is announcing student loan debt forgiveness for those that qualify. A borrower must be enrolled in the administrator's Saving on a Valuable Education repayment plan, have been making at least 10 years of payments, and originally taken out $12,000 or less for college. The trial of the armorer who worked on the set of the film Rust will start today in New Mexico. Hannah Gutierrez-Reed is charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter after she loaded a gun that was fired by actor Alec Baldwin. Jury selection will get underway today in Santa Fe after the judge denied to dismiss the charges. Neuralink's first brain implant patient can control a computer mouse simply by thinking. 
That's the claim the company's founder, Elon Musk, made on Monday. The neurotechnology company aims to eventually allow people with paralysis to regain motor function, and Musk has said he hopes the implants could also help people with diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. NASA is looking for volunteers to spend a year in a simulated Mars habitat. The plan is for people to live inside a 17,000-square-foot simulation at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. Those who end up inside will have to work to keep things running, grow crops, and work with robotics. And Tiger Woods' 15-year-old son is looking to compete on the PGA Tour. Charlie Woods will play in this Thursday's pre-qualifier in South Florida. Around 25 players will advance to the event's Monday qualifier, and then finally four players will earn spots in the Cognizant Classic next weekend. From your Avi Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. The church teaches that there should be a strong, healthy relationship between the spiritual and psychological dimensions of our identities as Christians. My guest, Brother John Mark Falkenheim, is a monk at St. Meinrad Arch Abbey, where he's the vocation director and assistant formation director, and also adjunct professor of psychology at St. Meinrad Seminary and School of Theology. He's been interested in integrating the psychological and the spiritual dimension of our lives. And, uh, Brother, good to have you with me. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Mr. Cresta. I have, let's start uh, with some basic definitions. Since we're integrating psychological and spiritual, what is psychological? What is spiritual? Uh, well, I suppose um, to try to define psychological, you could define it in many ways. Usually when psychologists think about kind of uh, mental well-being and uh, healthy psychological functioning, we think in terms of kind of the ABCs of affect or emotionality, mm-hmm. and behavior, and then cognition, so the way that we think. Um, and so our, you know, affect is really the domain of feelings, uh, mm-hmm. behavior is kind of our actions and what we do in terms of healthy or unhealthy behaviors, and then cognition um, kind of how we think and process information and uh, in conscious and unconscious ways. Um, I think the life of the Spirit really has to do with our relationship with God and uh, how we experience God and how that affects our relationships with other people. Um, and so certainly there is uh, some overlap uh, between those two, but it's important to kind of think of how they're different from one another as well. So pr- psychological problems then would be uh, like depression and anxiety, uh, paranoia, sure. spiritual problems would be what, despair, adultery, uh, lying. Yeah things, that we, yeah, things that we sort of think about uh, spiritual problems is, is oftentimes to think about sin, certainly. So we would think about um, kind of spiritual illnesses mm-hmm. as lying and adultery and, you know, gluttony and all those sorts of things. And, um, and so while lying might not be a psychological kind of problem, compulsive lying would, or, you know. And right. So, we, um, so yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a very good distinction. Uh, you know, in some ways today it looks like psychology, spirituality, psychology, and religion can complement one another beautifully, but I know in the history of psychology, they've often been perceived as enemies. Uh, you know, titans sure. like Freud, you know, uh, saw religion as uh, an illusion. Uh, why? Why? Why off to such a bad start <laughs> at the beginning? 
Well, you know, I, I'm not really sure. You know, I, I think it was, it was probably some of the historical period in which there was um, um, a kind of movement towards empiricism and uh, questions of spirituality or things that you couldn't prove. Um, and um, and so I think the in, kind of the intellectual tradition of the time was a little bit more suspicious of, of how people might use their religion in ways that um, kind of was just a you know, kind of a crutch or something like that. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's persisted, and I think the suspicion has sort of been on both both sides. I think sometimes uh, in the past, psychology may have been suspicion of religion. That's and true, suspicious yeah. of science and psychology. But um, I think that really um, you see more and more kind of a, a stance in which the two kind of recognize the contributions of the other. So, for example, um, in the American Psychological Association, there's a whole um, kind of subdivision for psychology and spirituality and theology. There's lots of books being published on that interface. Um, and certainly in our formation documents, for example, for priests and religious life, uh, there's a great emphasis on the importance of, you know, kind of basic human formation of yes. the human being in which, you know, kind of attention to the psychological is also very important. When John Paul II emphasized that human formation is foundational to priestly formation, mm-hmm. that was received as a welcome uh, presentation. Uh, on the one hand, I would have thought that would have been presupposed. Yeah, um, yeah, you would think so. I mean, even going all the way back to uh, Thomas Aquinas, who talks about sort of uh, grace builds on nature. Yeah, exactly. You know, grace builds on our nature as human beings. Um, uh, so it's something I think to to always be reminded of, and to note that that's a very ancient um, um, kind of tenet of, of how we think about people and. Uh, kind of even Christian anthropology that, um, and so yes, I suppose I think in, in light of um, kind of a, a society that's becoming more kind of psychologized in a way. Sure. Um, yep. And I, I think it, it's a, just another way of of reminding us that these things are complementary. And uh, you know, there's a really beautiful line in Pastoros Dabovobis, which is the document on the formation of priests, in which uh, Pope John Paul wrote. Um, that it's important that the priest mold his personality in such a way that it becomes a bridge and not an obstacle to people encountering Christ. And, yes. um, and if we think about any kind of minister, whether it's you know an ordained minister as a priest or a religious man or woman or, or even a layperson doing ministry in the church, um, really they are bringing Christ to other people. Um, and and so if our personality is very difficult to deal with mm-hmm. um, uh, or is offensive in some way, there's really no way that we can become a bridge to Christ. We, we end up being kind of a barrier or an obstacle to that. And so um, it, it, it never hurts, I think, to, to always state uh, some very basic truths about, you know, kind of ministry, about our faith, right. about our Christian right. apology, that um, God has made us, you know, in his image and likeness, and we are human just as Christ is fully human and fully divine. And so we can't eschew um, kind of our our bodily and our human and our personal uh, kind of existence. Yeah. Now, I've been, <laughs> I've been in situations in which the, the, the preaching of the gospel wasn't the offense. It was the preacher himself who was offensive. <laughs> sure. <Yeah. laughs> it gets to... And it's important to point that out, that, look, um, people may reject uh, the good news for a variety of reasons, but you certainly don't want them to reject the good news 
because the evangelist himself is an offensive character. Yeah. Not to expect, of course, that that the evangelist is going to be a perfect character. Right. Right. Oh, no. <laughs> I think that's, that's the other part of it, too, is that when we recognize our kind of flawed nature as human beings and we recognize and accept that, then we recognize God's capacity to work even through our faults and or despite our faults. Um, but there is a, a degree to which we have to be a healthy kind of human and psychological uh, being so that... Um, that grace really can build on on that healthy nature. When you look at um, American Catholicism today, you look at the laity, you look at uh, those in religious life, you look at the ordained, is there anything that strikes you in terms of affective immaturity that we really should be much more direct in addressing? There seems to be a lot of immature stuff happening. I'm not just referring to the, the, the sexual misconduct issue here. I'm sure. just talking about sometimes you get the impression that religious people aren't really adults. Um, well, there, you know, there's been some interesting studies along those lines. Um, and, uh, you know, to reference for a moment the, the clergy sexual offense uh, crisis, um, I had done a doctoral dissertation in that area oh. and and really looked at sub-types of offenders among clergy. And I, I didn't clergy. realize that. Tell me more, yeah. Yes. Um, and uh, so, you know, there are sort of different types of offenders, both in the general population, and those get sort of reflected as well uh, among the, the clergy and religious. Um, and, and there are certainly um, those who are really psychiatrically disturbed, but that's a very small um, kind of percentage mm-hmm. of offenders among priests and religious. Okay. Um, and then there's a kind of a, a big chunk of those who are, are characterized by a narcissistic personality style, which is very self-centered and, mm-hmm. kind of, and self-referential. But the largest group of offenders really were people who were just emotionally and psychosexually kind of underdeveloped. And so um, I, I think the nice thing in response to that and recognizing that is that in the last 20 or 30 years, we've really uh, made some strides in improving our our celibacy formation for mm-hmm. religious life and, and for priesthood, and um, recognizing that both education in the world of, of kind of psychosexual dynamics, but also just basic affective maturity or emotional intelligence, which the yeah. um, psychological field likes to call it, mm-hmm. um, is a really important factor um, in terms of uh, keeping people well-adjusted, um, as celibates, but just as as human beings, and we would hope the same for people entering into marriages and lay people as well. Yeah. That yeah. Um, to have nice insight uh, into our emotional experience, to have nice uh, coping tools for dealing with um, different emotional experiences, and particularly kind of aversive or challenging ones. You know, um, even attraction when we're not available to mm-hmm. uh, to enter into a relationship with someone, and sure. that would be true for a married person or a... Absolutely. As well, but yep. um, to kind of know and be aware of when we are tempted and uh, to know how to solve those problems and recognize them early so that um, so that we make the right decisions and uh, for ourselves and for other people as well. Yeah. Back in 2002, uh, when the Boston Globe stories hit and there's all the flurry, I was part of a small group talking about how to respond and my brother, uh, I mean, Father uh, Ben Groeschel was part of that group, and he and I were talking, and he mentioned that uh, when he was uh, when he was being formed, there was very little discussion of celibacy formation. Mm-hmm. That it was basically assumed you want to be a priest. Well, priests in the Western 
in the Latin right, priests are celibate, so you know that, and so we expect you to be celibate. The rule's clear. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and I was stunned. I, I didn't realize that. So this idea of celibacy formation is relatively new. Is that true? Uh, yes. No, that's right. When I've talked to um, uh, men in religious life and priesthood over you know, several generations, um, a lot of the the older men said, yeah, we just didn't have much at all, or they, you know, they told us, oh, just don't think about sex. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and so, you know, while there may be the tiniest kernel of truth, which is you don't obsess about sexuality and that sort of stuff, uh, you know, to, to t- entirely ignore it or not prepare people for the inevitable challenges that arise, um, is probably not going to be real helpful. Now, that's not to say that that some people weren't able to find some formation for themselves or um, or to adjust quite nicely. But um, I think that we have a better chance of um, avoiding problems when we make it um, kind of standard practice to do you know good celibacy formation, education in uh, sexuality and psychosexuality, education in. Um, emotionality and relationships, um, and what are healthy relationships, and what kind of healthy intimacy can um, celibate folks have, and uh, um, and so I think we've made some real strides there in the last. Uh, two to three decades, certainly, yeah. and uh, I think we continue to as well. Brother, let me thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. I hope we can talk again in the future, because I know we've just kind of scratched the surface of sure. the topic, but uh, I enjoyed the conversation and uh, look forward to talking again. Great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Brother John Mark Falkenhayn is a Benedictine monk of St. Meinrad Archabbey, where he's the vocation director and also adjunct professor of psychology at St. Meinrad Seminary and School of Theology. I'm Al Cresta. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Resetting your password, unsubscribing from emails, printing anything. Why are simple things sometimes so complicated? Thankfully, with an auto owner's insurance independent agent, Getting the right coverage for your business doesn't have to be one of them. So you can get back to more important things, like learning how that printer works. That's simple human sense. Call Choice Insurance Agency at 734-641-4200. Modern philosophers Kierkegaard, Shelley, Sartre proposed the idea that existence precedes essence, by which they meant, in simpler terms, that in the process of time we make or create, who and what we are. We understand, of course, that there are those who believe that their doing has been more successful than that of others, and have consequently argued that their being is on a higher state than that of others. This is the kind of thinking that leads to genocide, gas chambers, and abortion clinics. However, folks like Barb and Patrick and Paul and Alicia believe that from the beginning human essence is divinely ordered and infinitely valuable, and where else can we state this more clearly than our defense of preborn children who cannot prove themselves or justify themselves? They can only be, which is why they are so precious to one named I Am. 
Go to GuadalupeWorkers.org. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. St. Ignatius of Loyola introduces the sixth rule of his 14 rules for the discernment of spirits, calling to mind the directive of the fifth rule. In the fifth rule, St. Ignatius directs us not to change our spiritual decisions or proposals when we are in a time of spiritual desolation. The sixth rule states, Although in desolation we should not change our first proposals, it is very advantageous to change ourselves intensely against the desolation itself. The call in the sixth rule is to change ourselves, to change ourselves intensely against the spiritual desolation. We are not called to passively endure spiritual desolation, for God's call in the time of spiritual desolation is always to resist and fight against the desolation with strength, trust, and determination. How will you change yourself against the desolation? For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. This week on Christ is the Answer, it's the season of Lent, and Father John wants to help us prepare for Easter. It's only been about a week into Lent, but have you stuck to your goals of fasting and prayer? Or have you hit that spiritual roadblock? It's not too late. The Church has so many faithful ways for us to traverse this season of penance. So if you need encouragement, join us again this week as Father John helps us get the most out of Lent. Tune in for Christ is the Answer, Monday through Fridays at 11 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio. Hi, this is Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. Did you know that the Living Will was created by the Euthanasia Society? The USCCB says a better option is a healthcare durable power of attorney, where you choose a healthcare agent who understands your Catholic values. My Life Angels creates this legal document, available anywhere on mobile phones, safeguarding your medical decisions. My Life Angels will donate a percentage of your membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at mylifeangels.com. afternoon and today we take some time to look at President Abraham Lincoln. Uh, my guest Ron White is the author most recently of Lincoln in Private. What his most personal reflections tell us about our greatest president and uh, this these reflections are notes that Lincoln wrote to himself. They're undated uh, and it's, I'm sure it's part of a, a fun time for historians to try to figure out exactly the chronology of them. Ron is, uh, again, a noted Lincoln scholar. In my estimation, he's given us the best single-volume biography of Lincoln. It's simply called A. Lincoln. But he's also given us a great biography of uh, Ulysses S. Grant called American Ulysses. Ron is uh, taught at UCLA, Colorado College, Whitworth University, Princeton Theological Seminary. He's lectured at the White House, been interviewed on PBS uh, NewsHour. He really speaks about Lincoln all over the world, and you can follow his work at RonaldCWhite.com. Ron, good to have you back. Thanks. Thank you. Wonderful to be back again. I really enjoy speaking with you and your audience. <laughs> well, I this is this collection that you've assembled here. Tell us a little bit about these. I, we, in the past, I know we've talked about his meditation on the divine will, but I didn't realize there were lots yes. of other little fragments of his thoughts along the way. Well, I wondered how many were there, and, and we're really talking about surviving fragments. There's 111 of these fragments that have survived that are part of the now Lincoln Papers Project in Springfield, Illinois. 
Lincoln wrote these little notes to himself. He never, as you suggested, never dated them, never titled them, never signed them. But we can tell they're Lincoln by his very distinctive handwriting. He never expected any of us to ever see them. He wrote them for his eyes only. And what? How did they function for him? Were they were they rehearsals for a speech? Um, were they uh, ways of just kind of reminding himself of some clear thoughts that he had? How did they function for him? Very good question. Uh, they functioned. I thought maybe a lot would function for speeches, and they did. But he never, almost never quoted them. I think they were kind of pre-speeches, so to speak. He was working out in his own mind and his own writing, what did he think about slavery? Mm-hmm. What about the birth of the Republican Party? What did he think about God's will or God's role in the Civil War? And so this is the way he kind of worked these things out. Remember that people in the 19th century read out loud. Lincoln often spoke out loud before he put pen to paper. Sometimes they're what we call fragments because they end in the middle of a word or the middle of a sentence. He's been called away to some meeting. (laughs) You and I might be called away to a telephone call or email or whatever. And so they just stop. But this is what makes them so incredibly interesting. Give give me the example um, of the the outrage Lincoln, uh, the the pro-slavery theology that he was reacting to. October 1st, 1858 is the uh, suspected date. Yes. What's very interesting is that, uh, sadly, today, you and I, now, I don't want to say you and I, but many people, read, <laughs> we, we read in silos. We only read one side or the other side. Right. When Lincoln came home from his uh, single term in Congress, his law partner, William Herndon, said, well, I think we now ought to order some anti-slavery uh, newspapers. And Lincoln said, well, that would be fine. I'd be happy to do that. But he said, I think we all also ought to over- order some southern newspapers. Well, he said, well, how in the world would we do that? Well, he said, we need to have both sides at the table. Mm-hmm. So in the middle of his debates with Stephen Douglas, he purchased a pro-slavery book. It was written by a Presbyterian minister, And it was making the case that the Bible spoke for slavery. Mm -hmm. So this is what I call in this chapter the outraged Lincoln. The fact is it is true that the Negro is inferior to the white in the gifts of nature. Is it not the exact reverse justice that the white should, for that reason, take from the Negro any part of the little which has been given to him, Give to him that is needy is the Christian rule of charity, but take from him that is needy is the rule of slavery. (laughs) The sum of pro-slavery theology seems to be that slavery is not universally right, nor yet universally wrong. It is better for some people to be slaves, and in such cases it is the will of God that they be such. Now, if I may, let me just skip to the end of this. Yes. Uh, where he kind of compares what he just said. But slavery is good for some people, and he writes triple exclamation points. As a good thing, slavery is strikingly peculiar in this, that it is the only good thing which no man ever seeks the good of for himself. (laughs) Nonsense! Wolves devouring lambs, not because it is good for their own greedy maws, because it is good for the lambs, triple exclamation point. <laughs> oh, so Lincoln never quotes this in a speech, 
but you can see he's working this thing out. He's reading the other side, so to speak, yeah. the pro-slavery theology, so he will understand it. Uh, it's 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 incredibly wickedly ironic too. I mean, it's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, many people don't realize how um, the idea of the inferiority of the quote Negro was really part of American culture at that time, even in the North. And um, so, absolutely, yeah, no, this is true. Not just the South, but in, as you say, in the North also. Yeah. Yes, and in that. Uh, I remember the shock that I had many years ago when I actually read a book called uh, Slavery, Sabbath, War, and Women, which simply presented huh? written materials from the 19th century. And in the case mm-hmm. on slavery, yeah. it presented lots of pro-slavery arguments from distinguished Southern theologians like Dabney. And I was shocked right. at how strong the case was made from the scriptures on behalf of slavery. Yes, yes. You know, um, yes, uh-huh. and so I don't think I, I don't think today people realize that uh, the South was able to use Scripture to justify that institution, and it took yes. thinkers like Lincoln to really um, demonstrate the the internal inconsistencies of those arguments, uh, and this is a good example of it. Slavery is good. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's the only good nobody seeks for himself. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, this is a wonderful fragment or a wonderful note. It's, it's not long. It's very pithy, very poignant. Yeah. Um. And there's, there was a lot of debate, and there's still, I suppose, is still a lot of debate over Lincoln's attitude towards slavery. Uh, what was yes. the trajectory of his thought on this? Well, he's on a path forward. He, as a young man at age 19, he took a load of cargo from southern Indiana down to New Orleans. And there he encountered, really for the first time, the awfulness of slavery. On one side of the Mississippi River was a dock of African-American men. On the other side, a dock of African-American women and children. Marriage was not legal, not recognized in slavery, and he was horrified. But as he moves along, he will ultimately understand that slavery is not just bad for black people, it's bad for white people. What does it do to white people? What does it do to us as a society to have these two distinct types, classes of people in our society? This is the antithesis of democracy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, take me to um, th- this reflection early on um, on the transcendence of Niagara Falls. What 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 is this? You call yes. it the lyrical Lincoln. The lyrical Lincoln. Yeah. Well, Lincoln is known and is often a very logical, rational, thoughtful person, and so we don't think of Lincoln really as a lyrical or a poetic person. Right. In 1848, he was uh, he was in Congress, the only term he served. He went to Boston to do some campaigning. And on his way home to Springfield, Illinois, he stopped in at the Sea Niagara Falls, which at the time was the greatest American phenomenon. This is long before Yellowstone or, or Glacier or Yosemite. Yeah. America felt quite inferior to Europe and England in terms of its culture, but what we had they didn't have was these great natural wonders 
Niagara Falls was the greatest natural wonder, a tremendous tourist attraction. So he writes this note to himself. Again, it's a fragment. It ends in mid-sentence. Let me read just a little of it. Sure. Niagara Falls, by what mysterious power is it that millions and millions are drawn from all parts of the world to gaze upon Niagara Falls? And then almost as a philosopher, a geologist, he describes it, but he says at the end, but still there is more. It calls up the indefinite past when Columbus first sought this continent, when Christ suffered on the cross, when Moses led Israel through the Red Sea, nay, even when Adam first came from the hand of his maker, then as now Niagara was whirring here. The eyes of that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America have gazed on Niagara, as ours do now. Contemporary with a whole race of men and older than the first man, Niagara is strong and fresh today as 10,000 years ago. The mammoth and the mastodon, now so long dead, but fragments of their monstrous bones alone testify that they ever lived have gazed on Niagara in that long, long time, never still for a single moment, never dried, never froze, never slept, never rested, comma. (laughs) He doesn't end it. But what I found especially fascinating was that when he gets back to Springfield, his law partner, William Herndon, who will present himself after Lincoln's assassination as the great interpreter of Lincoln, he understood him better than anyone, He didn't really understand this part of Lincoln at all because he had recently been to Niagara Falls Herndon. So this is what he wrote of Lincoln. He had no eye for the magnificence and grandeur of the scene, for the rapids, the mist, the angry waters, and the roar of the whirlpool. This Lincoln, according to Herndon, was, quote, heedless of beauty or awe. (laughs) Well, obviously, he'd never read the notes. I guess guess (laughs) not. Captivated by the beauty and awe. Yeah. And so I wanted to present this because this is not the Lincoln we usually think of, this lyrical Lincoln. Yeah. No, that's very true. Uh, I never considered that that before, but you're right. Uh, You know, does he... I mean, this, that piece uh, that you just read from his gazing upon Niagara Falls, I mean, it shows that he's a very reflective man. Uh, that he, he, Yes, absolutely. You know, yeah. um, when we come back, I want to just continue to pursue this idea of him as somebody who is not reactionary, but is very reflective. Wonderful. My guest is Dr. Ronald White. He's the author, most recently, of Lincoln in Private. What his most personal reflections tell us about our greatest president. I'm Al Cresta. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. 
when Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio, weekdays on Ave Maria Radio. People think it's easier to stay in the muck. The devil that we know is easier than the devil we don't know, but what they don't realize is that the situation can get worse. And what we're seeing now with some of these very liberal orders, let's say, for example, these liberal orders that are dying out, especially religious sisters, dying out, literally folding. And then you have the religious orders such as the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, the Dominican Sisters in Nashville, the Sisters of Life in New York, flooded with requests for information and to meet with the sisters about this beautiful life because they're so joyful because they are living the truth of Scripture and the truth of the Eucharist of Jesus. But these people will not let go because then you have to look yourself in the mirror and then you have to surrender. I think it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. Who's God? Are we God or is God God? Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio, Weekday mornings from 8 to 10 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio and AveMariaRadio.net. Jesus had great respect for the temple in Jerusalem, according to the Catholic Catechism. It was the special dwelling of his Father, where he could go and commune with him. Though he was God himself, he was perfectly willing to pay the temple tax. And yet, he foretold the destruction of the temple, a time when there would not remain a stone upon a stone. Jesus, who was the ultimate dwelling place, the bodily temple of God in enduring the death of that body, foretold the destruction of the temple. This, the Catholic Catechism says, would manifest the dawning of a new age in the history of salvation. The Lord declared, The hour is coming when neither on the mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. You're listening to Ave Maria Radio. Ave Maria Radio. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. The question of gender identity is divisive, controversial, and often painful. How should parents respond to sons and daughters desiring to change their gender? Will the church remain free to teach that we are created male and female? What do the sciences say? We'll find out on March 2nd when Father Gabriel Richard High and Ave Maria Radio host our annual Familiaris Consortio Conference, Responding to Gender Dysphoria in Truth and Charity. Attorney John Bursch takes on gender ideology. Professor of Endocrinology Dr. Paul Cruz covers the sciences. Father Sean Kilcauley speaks as a pastor. And you will bring plenty of questions for our panel. Be there Saturday morning, March 2nd, from 8.15 until noon at Father Gable Richard High in Ann Arbor. The event is free, includes a light breakfast, so register at AveMariaRadio.net or FGRHS.org. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Ronald White. <clears throat> he is the author most recently of Lincoln in Private. What his most personal reflections tell us about our greatest president. Well, Ron, <clears throat> do we think of you know, Lincoln as our greatest president, or certainly one of our greatest presidents? Uh, how did he deal with failure? You've got a passage uh, oh. here, a fragment that he wrote, uh, comparing himself to uh, Douglas, Stephen Douglas. 
Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yes, Lincoln was a person who did not readily share his feelings. As I said before, a very rational, very thoughtful person. So in the 19th century, up until early 20th century, people ran for the United States Senate by being elected by their state legislators. In 1855, he ran to be a senator from Illinois. He ran on a platform of opposing the extension of slavery west into the territories. He led on the first seven ballots. But then he realized that he was not going to win, and so he pulled his support and supported a Democrat who was also against the extension of slavery. Well, publicly, Lincoln was quite fine. This is okay. I'm all right. The real person in the election was Stephen Douglas, who was the author of the bill, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which would have authorized slavery moving west. But in this private note, listen to what he says and listen to his feelings. Twenty-two years ago, Judge Douglas, Stephen Douglas, and I first became acquainted. So this is a note we can point to the exact date, 1856. Mm -hmm. We were both young then. He a trifle younger than I. Even then, we were both ambitious. I, perhaps, quite as much so as he. With me, the race of ambition has been a failure, a flat failure. With him, it has been one of splendid success. Here we have the person who in less than four years will be president of the United States saying to himself, my life has been a failure, a flat failure. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. Um, yeah. You know, Lincoln uh, has the reputation, as you said, of being logical, um, reserved in that respect, uh, not reactionary. You don't think of him as very emotional. Um at the same time, though, he suffered greatly, right, uh, in, in, in terms of personal loss, family loss. Yes. Um, yes. Do we have any of his personal reflections on those losses? We do not. And this is an interesting question. Why do we do not? I, I think there's at least two options here. First of all, I think he probably didn't save all of his notes. Mm-hmm. When he and Mary were getting ready to leave Springfield in February 1861 to go to Washington for him to become the 16th president, she went out in the back alley and in what she called a burn pile, a burn pile, she burned a lot of documents. I think she burned the correspondence between she and her husband, which was a thing people did in the 19th century. Husbands and wives didn't want to let their correspondence to each other become public somehow. So she burned it all. We only have several letters between the two of them. It may be that Lincoln burned some of these things. He didn't want people reading about his wife or (laughs) what he thought about his children. It may also be that his son, Robert, the only one who lived into adulthood, who was the custodian of the Lincoln Papers, may have thought to himself in later years, well, these really aren't necessary for the public to ever see. You know? yeah. Let's, I'll only print the, let them see the ones that he's talking about, democracy or slavery. Right. So we don't have anything reflecting on his personal life. Hmm. Um, when, when did his wife begin to show signs of uh, mental illness? Well, first of all, I'm a little more sympathetic to Mary Lincoln than some modern authors sure. about the fact that she lost Eddie at three and a half in 1850. She lost Willie 
1862, age 11, she lost Tad. She lost her husband, yep. and then she lost Tad when he was 17. Yeah. So in 1875, she was put into a courtroom in Chicago, Illinois, and tried for insanity. Twelve male jurors connect, convicted her of insanity, and she was sentenced to the Bellevue Sanatorium for insane sanatorium for women. While she was there, uh, a first woman lawyer in Illinois, Myra Bradwell, did everything she could to get Mary Lincoln out of this insane asylum. Wow, okay. And finally, after a few weeks, she was successful. And in deep gratitude, Mary gave Myra Bradwell not simply some gifts that her husband had received as president, but she gave her this remarkable note or fragment. As I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. This expresses my idea of democracy. Whatever differs from this to the extent of the difference is no democracy. All the other notes were kind of gathered up by his secretaries, John Hay and John Nicolay. After his assassination, they were in Lincoln's office, in a desk drawer, in, even in his top hat, various places. But Mary somehow held on to this one. Huh. And this is where I want to suggest that he's on a journey of understanding slavery. He understands this, I would not be a master. Right. In other words, this is not good for masters. Right. And one other point here, Lincoln was really adept, as was Shakespeare, of the use of the negative. The interesting way to make a point, we would almost think we could make it a positive point, but listen to this, as I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. Hmm. This expresses my idea of democracy. Whatever differs from this to the extent of the difference is no democracy. If your readers will go back sometime and read the Gettysburg Address, you'll see how he uses the negative again and again and again to make a positive point. Yeah. Really profound the way Lincoln writes. Well, what do we know from his these fragments uh, about the emergence of this new party, the Republican Party? Well, he writes about that in one of these fragments. The Republican Party was probably founded in 1854 in several different locations. It was the successor of the old uh, Whig Party, mm -hmm. and uh, Lincoln was a little late in joining. He he, uh, he 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 was he was a loyal person, and he was loyal to the Whigs, and so he wasn't quite sure that he wanted to join this new party. But once he saw that this was the party of the future, that they could unite the Whigs, it was anti-slavery, he liked that. It was broader than the Whigs. He joined it. But he's concerned. And his concern is, and he's not sure the leaders of the party are concerned enough, that it's being viewed as a sectional party. Mm. Whigs had both people in the North and South. It seems that the Republican Party is only a Northern party. Gotcha. So he writes this fragment to himself and lays out the problem true the, the, the problem that it must be a, uh, can't be uh, just as a, 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 a sectional party he concludes by saying actions speak louder than words is the maxim and if true the, the south now distinctly says to the north give us the measure and you take the men he points out that how even the democratic party had elected all kind of Northerners who were who were who were really pro-Southern in their attitude, 
And so he wants to make the point that the Republican Party is really a national party. Mm-hmm. He doesn't see, he says, I beg to know how one side of that question is more sectional than the other. Yeah. He's making the case that the Republican Party is and must become a national party. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was his relationship to the abolitionist movement? Very good question, Al. On the one hand, I just said Lincoln was anti-slavery, but he was worried that the abolitionist movement were were the true believers, people who who, who were so sure of themselves that they didn't give any ground for any other point of view. Example, uh, in 1844, Henry Clay, who Lincoln loved, he called him my beau ideal of a statesman, <laughs> ran as the Whig candidate for president. He lost the election, and he did so because in New York, 17,000 people voted for the Liberty Party, which was a very strongly abolitionist party. If those people had not been counted, Clay would have won New York and won the presidency. What did Lincoln call those people? He called them the righteous. Well, really what he was saying was (laughs) self-righteous. Right, right. So he was kind of worried that abolitionists were pretty radical, pretty self-righteous, so he was anti-slavery, but he was worried about people who were so intolerant of any other point of view. He did not want to be that kind of leader. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we Lincoln has just a, a solid place in our in our esteem today. Uh, and I know certainly after his assassination, um, it, 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 it was it came to be a hallowed event. Uh, was there ever a time that uh, Lincoln, since his death, lo- has lost his reputation? Did he ever have? Was there ever a down period where he he ceased to be considered great? I think if that if there was a period before now, now as we know, he's a very contested period. I think people who fail to understand that he's a 19th century person and often what I call proof text. We can proof text the Bible. We can proof text uh, political speeches. We take a few words here and a few words there out of context. Perhaps in the early 20th century, uh, people were not willing to sort of see Lincoln as as great a figure as he was. People had, had not quite come to reckon what the Emancipation Proclamation was in the era of white supremacy, mm-hmm. in the era, era of, of pushing back against black freedom. So the fact that he is the Emancipation President wasn't fully appreciated, I would say, at that point in time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, do we have any fragments that, that where he's dealing with the problem of secession? Well, we do, yes. We have an interesting one, the... Uh, the uh, one of his the single term that he did serve in Congress, he became very very close to Alexander Stevens. He was very impressed with Stevens, a very small smart man from Georgia. Hmm. And uh, when the secession movement broke out in in, in December eighteen sixty, Stevens was ultimately at first was against secession. He would ultimately become the vice president of the Confederacy. So when Lincoln heard that he had written a speech against secession, he wrote to his old friend Stevens and said, well, please send me that speech. I'd like to read it. 
And when he did read it, uh, he thought, this is very good. So they continued the correspondence. And, and But then he discovered that, Link, that Stevens really was for slavery. Oh. And he had to write, not back to Stevens, he never wrote him again. He wrote this remarkable note about secession and the Constitution. This is what he says. Yes. Without the Constitution and the Union, we could not have attained the result, the result being a United Nation. But even these are, are not the primary cause of our great prosperity. There is something back of these entwining itself more closely about the human heart. That something is the principle of liberty to all, the principle that clears the path for all, gives hope to all, and by consequence, enterprise and industry to all. So he writes this document sort of saying, behind the Constitution is the Declaration of Independence. Right, right. Don't, Stephen, just appeal to the Constitution. Understand the Declaration. That's the bulwark of our nation. Yes, and that's important to remember. Uh, That was his argument against the Dred Scott decision. So, Ron, thank you. It's always great talking with you. Thank you, Al, very much for inviting me. Thank you so much. Teaching your kids to swim has never been easier, thanks to Big Blue Swim School in Ann Arbor. In their mobile app, you can schedule a weekly 30-minute lesson for each of your children all at the same time. You can also cancel and reschedule a lesson with the most flexible makeup class policy of any local swim school, including 15 free makeup lessons. Learn more at BigBlueSwimSchool.com. Register by March 17th to get 60% off your first four lessons when you mention Ave Maria Radio. I just love when you're praying about something and God sends you messages through other people. I truly believe when you build that relationship with God and strengthen it every day, He speaks to you. My friend Ikhlas Bashi shared a Bible verse with me one day that was totally a response to my prayers, unbeknownst to her when she was jotting it down to share with me. I had been praying about something for a long time, and one thing I was struggling with was knowing that the decision was out of my control. I just wanted whatever would happen to be God's will. As we were talking about New Year's resolutions, Ikhlas quoted Isaiah, Behold, I will do something new. That next morning, I opened an email with one of my oldest and favorite prayers in the inbox. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. And thank you, God, for the messages. This has been a christ Center communication message. I'm Vanessa Dunhagarmo, a communications evangelist. Light of the East. Weekends on Ave Maria Radio. I'm Father Thomas Loya. This week on Ave Maria, behold, the church is covered with a heavenly garment by the icons, thus preserving the true faith. May those who do not believe this be covered with shame. Now on Ave Maria Radio's newest FM stations, 105.5 FM in Southfield and 107.9 FM in Ann Arbor.
Thank you for joining us over that first hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. If you go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can uh, follow up on today's conversations. We have lots of other things there as well. Of course, while you're there, right in the slider, it's our first slider of the rotation. We've got a link to this uh, Familiaris Consortio event, male and female, he created them, responding to gender dysphoria and truth and charity. And then if you scroll down just a little bit on that homepage, back in the featured video section, we have the video we did with Monica Miller a couple years ago, looking at the theology of the passion of the Christ. This is really an outstanding conversation between Al and Monica. And uh, our video producer, Scott Rouse, did a great job of integrating clips both from the passion and from other films about the life of Jesus, so that as Monica and Al are talking about it, you can actually see this scene they're referring to. And it's a a great thing to view during this Lenten season. Uh, As we wrap up, we are heading into another hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. Lots more to talk about, including one of our guests, Father Rob Galea, sharing his journey of despair to hope. Uh, Father Galea was once a lonely, miserable teenager, wanted to feel like he belonged, so he joined a gang, and his life slowly spiraled down from there. But he turned it around. He shares that story with us in the next hour. We'll be back with more Cresta in the afternoon.